It's time for class. Civics just doesn't begin and end on election day. This is Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged with political strategist L. Joy Williams on Sirius XM's Urban View. Welcome to Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged. I am your host, your civics teacher and neighborhood political strategist L. Joy Williams, and I am so glad that you made it to class this morning. We are just 22 days into this new year, but civic engagement does not stop. Local elections are in full swing in places like Chicago, Jacksonville, and Tampa, Florida, Wisconsin, and many more. So I have a question. What is your plan in your local municipal elections? Are you running? Are you keeping track of the candidates for mayor, city council, school board, the tax collector? If you have a tax collector, there are even utility boards in some places that may have races going on this year. So if you want to find out what races may be going on where you live, you can visit your state elections board Or I find in order for me to look at what's happening across the country, I can just go to Ballotpedia, ballotpedia.com, or is it .org? I can't remember. But it's also a helpful tool in helping to determine if you have elections to vote in in 2023, and chances are you may. There is never an off year as it pertains to elections, at least for, for consultants. So make sure to check out those dates for yourself, where you live in your respective state, and put them on your calendar your Google calendar, your Outlook calendar, whatever calendar you use, you need to put it on your calendar so you know that you need to show up to vote. But more importantly, you wanna know what's going on locally and what elections you need to be prepared to vote in. Everybody knows maybe I vote for a mayor or things like that, but what about the tax collector? Yeah, that's a real position. In New York City, we don't have those, but in a lot of places you do. So you need to check that out. Now, while I'm at it, I wanna share another resource that might be helpful to you. This is to help you follow your state budget process. Now, most state legislators have already began their budget process. The governors give a preliminary budget to the legislator. There's like a budget address and all that kind of stuff. And there probably are already a few fights brewing regarding proposed cuts because that's the dance. We call it the budget dance that happens. You know, the legislative body puts their preliminary budget and then the governor does. And there's like these proposed cuts or the mayor has proposed cuts, if you want to say, on the local level. And then they fight for the next couple of months on whether or not they're going to cut funding to libraries or things like that. It's a whole dance that happens. But if you don't know what the schedule is for your state budget process, you can visit statescape.com and look up your state and you can see more information about the process, when it starts, when is it supposed to end. Some states have constitution dates in their constitution that they have to have a budget set and things like that. So you want to pay attention to that. You can look at the local section of your daily paper or the local news to see what the legislature, the governor, or even a local budget process, what people are proposing, and if it has a direct effect, most likely it does, (laughs) if it has a direct effect on your community and the resources you need. 
Now, before we take a break, I want to remind you that this show has been nominated for a second time for an NAACP Image Award in the Outstanding News and Information Podcast category. And there are two things I want to tell you about. So first, you can vote for the show. All you got to do is go to vote.naacpimageawards.net. When you visit the site, you can not only vote in the podcast category, but there are a number of other public categories you can vote for. The podcast category is all the way at the bottom, but you can vote in all of the categories and make your selections and then enter your email address and then boom, you voted for Sunday Civics, you voted for other people and your vote just may have helped make me you know, make the difference to bring that statue home this year. Nobody wants to be like nominated like 11 times and never win, i.e. Well, no, I'm not going to be that shady. Anyway, second, to celebrate the nomination, we are hosting a Sunday Civics live show next Sunday, January 29th at 5 p.m. We're going to have an amazing show. So there'll be a show at our regular time. And our guest is Sherilyn Eiffel. Can't wait for that conversation. And then at 5 p.m., me and my thoroughest girls, Laree Daniel Favors, June Moses, and a few other special guests and some surprises. We're going to come together for a live show that you do not want to miss. So you can watch the show on YouTube, on Facebook, and if you don't use any of those platforms, it'll be on the website, sundaycivics.org. Thank you so much for all of your support in this endeavor. Please make sure to vote. And if you are social media active, if you want to share it with your friends and tell them to vote too, I won't be bad at you. <laughs> so we're going to take a short break. And then when we come back, I'm going to be joined by Lauren Bellor from Prosperity Now. We've had them on the show before, but we're going to have a conversation about one of the tools policymakers can use to promote the building of more affordable housing. It's called inclusionary zoning. I know it's not something that is a normal term that everybody knows about, but we're going to talk about what that is. Maybe it will work in your community for the building of more affordable housing. We'll also have a conversation about what affordable means. So we'll talk more about that with Lauren from Prosperity now when we come back. Schoolboy and schoolgirl come together. Who is the teacher? I go let you know. Welcome back to Sunday Civics. I'm your civics teacher, L. Joy Williams. And coming to the front of the class, now this is a tent-heavy class, so pay attention. I know there are a number of you who are policymakers, state and municipal legislators. This conversation is for you as you chart a course in how do you address affordable housing and housing in general in your catchment areas. Here in New York State, the governor in her state of the state address made housing a priority, a top priority for the next year, particularly for the budget cycle. So this is something that I'm particularly focused on of the question, how do you ensure that you can one, have quality housing, one, make sure that it's affordable and uh, you know that that affordability tag is something that is difficult to quantify for a lot of people. So I am bringing someone to the front of the class that we can nerd out with a bit for all of you policymakers and legislators. She is the Associate Director of State and Local Policy at Prosperity Now. My guest coming to the front of the class is Lauren Belor. Lauren, thank you so much for making it to Sunday Civics this morning. Thank you so much for, for having me on this Sunday morning. Yes. And so you know your stuff as it pertains to legislative policy. You have a thorough background 
important that <laughs> I will say for the show notes of the show, because I want to get into the nitty gritty of this conversation because everybody, everybody says that they want more affordable housing. And then that, you know, opens up the question affordable for who, and then how do you build affordable housing and things of that nature. But you re recently authored a report on this for Prosperity Now. So we're going to talk about that in detail. But before we get there, since it's your first time in front of the class, I'd love for you to share the story of your first civic action. Sure thing. So my first civic action actually comes in two parts, in two different eras as well. One from a political perspective and the other from a policy perspective. So the political, my first civic action would be with my parents. I know it sounds cliche, but my parents to vote. And it was at the polling location was my actual elementary school. So to see my elementary school transform into this voter hub where you take out the chairs in the classroom and turn them into voting booths. I mean, even the little things like that made it feel like it was something that was very, very important, vital, but also tied into my educational experience. And then on top of that, I just assumed that it was a part of adulting. <laughs> I thought that it was just like what we were supposed to do. And, and I have to applaud my parents and the many parents that instilled that. But also we have to applaud some of the educational process. And that's where the policy perspective comes in. I definitely, social studies was one of my favorite subjects. I think anyone that works in policy or politics is guilty of that and probably English as well. And in sixth grade, we had a social study class where we had a current event series where we had to select a new article weekly and write about a different topic. Now, the reason why the eras are important for both of these aspects of my first action is that when I went to vote with my parents, that was the 90s. So we were under the primarily under the Clinton administration. Um, when I experienced that. So it was more so putting democracy at the forefront. And then when we were doing the current event series, that was during the Bush administration. And that really put foreign policy and economy policy at the forefront. So those were those policy issues really came to the the helms of how I saw politics and policy at the time. And it just showed how important the administrations also can play a role in your first civic action, whether you're it's loud and it's a protest heavy for some people, probably young in the 2016 era, or if you're talking 90s and early 2000s. That is a great, so uh, to tie how you are engaged politically to what is also going on around you. I love the throwback to the current events piece because that also was my favorite thing to do. And I remember when I got my own subscription to the newspaper because reading the paper is a big thing in my family. Whoever's subscription it is, you can't read the paper until that person reads the, <laughs> the paper. It's is a whole thing, particularly the Sunday paper. Like, who opened my paper? Like, it needs to be clean and crisp. Mm -hmm. Don't open my thing. I still have a little bit of that today, but now with, like, kids and my husband who did not grow up that way, sometimes I get magazines and stuff, and I'm like, who read my paper? Like, who read <laughs> my paper? But I remember getting the, my own subscription that I could, it was my paper with my name on it, 
and being able to like find a story and bring it to class and being able to discuss it, what I thought about it, who the article was for. We just talked about this, you know, with other guests about being able to evaluate what you're reading and not only what's the facts of the case of what you're reading, but also what you think about it, you know, and whether or not the person is giving their opinion or giving facts or history. That's something, those practices that all of us who remember that assignment need to put into our daily practice these days with all that's going on. So, you know, you authored this report. You authored this report about inclusionary zoning. And first, I want you to slow down and talk to us about what inclusionary zoning is. Absolutely. Love a breakdown. So, and one, I I have to, I would be remiss if I did not give a shout out to our our summer intern from this past year, Anikit. Amazing. Undergraduate student really led on, I was his mentor and led on the co-authoring of this report and helped with a lot of the research and actually pulling the report together. So I would be so remiss if I did not shout him out. I love to give love in addition to my team as well, give love where see fit. But as far as what inclusionary zoning is, and we're, we're going to take way back to look at the different types of zoning as well. So before deep diving into IZ, let's just discuss what zoning is in general. Zoning allows local governments to regulate which areas under their jurisdiction may have real estate or land used for particular purposes. And that piece is so important because it's going to play a role into the actual policy solutions. So that's why I wanted to start. Some of the examples of zoning classifications include residential, commercial, agricultural, industrial, or a hotel and hospitality, among other specific designations. And zoning laws can be changed by a local government as long as they fall within state and federal statutes and a particular plot of land may be rezoned based on consideration. So when we're talking about inclusionary zoning, which is also known as inclusionary housing, there are policies that mandate or encourage new residential developments to dedicate a share of homes to low and moderate income families as a means for equitable housing strategies. And the most common method of that is inclusionary zoning, which creates specific affordability targets in local land use codes. But we use the term inclusionary housing to also include additional incentives and programs that complement zoning requirements. So I know that was a mouthful and probably policy wonky. So I'm gonna break that down even further. Basically, because we've had historically have had a lot of housing discrimination specifically for BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, or POC or people of color communities, due to that, we have to take into consideration predatory lending and gentrification and redlining and all of these different practices that have really helped to create inequitable housing strategies in different communities that typically harm those demographics. And that's why inclusionary zoning is so important because when you target that land use for low or moderate income families, you're also considering how that might help certain demographics from a racial and ethnic standpoint as well. So you're right. It does sound policy wonky and nerdy. But, you know, let me take it further down because you would think that listening to Lauren, 
that the only people involved in this process of zoning or rezoning or creating this po policy are legislators, are policymakers, the governor, the legislature, and things of that nature. Nothing is further from the truth. There are actual business folks involved in the process. There are lake people, community people involved in this process. I had to learn on the job, if you will. I served on the community board for over a decade. Community board in New York City is like your town, you know, town groups and councils and things of that nature. It represents a particular neighborhood. And we had a committee, a housing and land use committee. And I was vice co-chair co of that committee. And we rezoned Bedford-Stuyvesant in <laughs> Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. And, you know, primary, prim primary concern was the height of buildings. We This is like the height of the building boom under Bloomberg that's happening. You know, lots of housing being built, lots of built businesses, business districts being built. You know, this is when the Barclays Center gets built in Brooklyn, things of that nature, right? Mm -hmm. And so I don't have a policy background in zoning. I don't know the technical, but part of the process in New York City of zoning or rezoning is the inclusion of community boards in determining that process. How high do you want a building buildings to go? So some of people are just like, I like our community where it's no higher than five stories and, you know, you could see the sun, <laughs> you know, and the sky. Or you might say, we want to build a downtown and you want skyscrapers. How wide can your building be? You know, if everything on the street has to be commercial or businesses and then, you know, residential on top, all of that is what zoning is. It's basically mm -hmm. creating the parameters for which building and housing happen in your community. And if you look around, it's a possibility that there is a local municipal group, whether a community board here in New York City or your town council or others who are involved in that process or need to actually comment or give suggestion as that zoning or rezoning is done. So fast forward, we go to affordable housing. This is a hard nut to crack, Lauren, because people, I mean, this is tied to our homeless policy. This is tied to economic policy, right? You know, how much housing do we need? What type of housing do you need? Who's going to build it? Who's going to pay for it to be built? Is it rent housing? Is it home ownership? All of those things come into play. So when you're talking about mandating, which inclusionary zoning is once you get to the language of it, and you say, okay, this is a place like, you know, Montana. Montana decides, you know, we want to build, you know, some more community, some more housing. People are moving to the state of Montana for some reason. And, you know, we want to build housing that's adequate for this. Well, our normal situation. I'm not sure I understand Siri keeps wanting to get in this conversation. The normal, <laughs> the normal thing is like, you know, historically Montana has one family houses or whatever on five acres of land. Now mm -hmm. you want to build skyscrapers, you know, mm -hmm. for additional people on the land that's going to house now 5,000 people. Like talk about some of those mandates, you know, particularly in areas where there is a need for more housing because of the population. 
So there's a couple of things that you touched on that I think might be helpful even before going into the mandates that I think will help people digest the importance of engaging from a community perspective and what the options are to engage just before I go into that. So one thing that we have to note is this, a person's zip code actually has more of an impact on their life expectancy than that person's genetic code. So let's start there. We really have to consider that, you know, where someone is born, unfortunately, through these social constructions that we've set up that always tie into race and equity contribute to their financial security or financial well-being, even into the future. And there's so many intersections of that as we think about housing, taxation, financial security, et cetera, child wealth, which are all aspects of policy work that, you know, I do and we do at Prosperity Now. But it's so important to think about those contributions and then think about how we address the conversation of affordability. Well, first we have to decide who even defined affordability before we even can think about the mandates. Because yes, housing is a very popular right now, not just due to inflation, but also because a lot with the shift in the political landscape in a lot of states, there are you know, four states with a trifecta, which for those that know, trifecta means they have the governorship as well as the legislature. And for many of those states also have their state Supreme Court, attorney general office, period state, et cetera. So it's so important because a lot of states, even those that are red states or more conservative states, in addition to blue states or more progressive states, are taking the route of addressing housing from a state perspective, which is really important because although we have municipalities that do deal with a lot of the mandates, the state is going to hold a lot more weight if you actually are writing that into legislation rather than making it a program or a mandate. So it's really important to think about that aspect as well. Now that we're building up to this foundation, we talked about the state aspect and we talk about the fact that it's embedded in your genetic code. Um, let's also look at what are the opportunities to address how this creates a financial pipeline of well-being for individuals where you have housing security, homeownership, and then housing retention, because homeownership retention is a part of the issue, too, with eviction and displacement. So a couple of ways that communities can do that, like you mentioned, they're on a community level you have opportunities to be on zoning boards, which many people, yes, they do not know about zoning off bat. That's not something that you're necessarily learning about in, in <laughs> that social studies class, right? But the option to be a part of a board can be appointed and people can be civic, civically engaged. People can also attend council meetings or the zoning board meetings that are public and be able to know and be engaged in what's happening. But additionally, from a housing perspective, there are other options available. Really look at the land use part of things, which is really important because the mandates are not necessarily guaranteed to be in favor of inclusionary zoning. So you're going to need that to encourage developers. And that's going to include 
cooperatives like land trusts that help preserve affordability and assets. So there are different community reinvestment coalitions available that specifically support Black and brown communities. And then Additionally, through the cooperative ownership of land, that's where resident-owned communities, which are also known as ROCs, have purchasing power and leave the purchasing power in the hands of individuals. So I'm, I'm going to stop there because I know, again, I said a mouthful, and I, I do want to dive more into the role that that plays, the role that community development financial in, financial institutions or CDFIs play in looking at low and moderate home, income homeownership. Because I don't think people know that these options are available. But there are a lot of land banks on the municipal level. I'm I live in D.C., but I'm originally from Detroit, and there's a whole land bank authority connected, <laughs> Detroit land bank authority that's connected to, um, to housing. And so it's just really important that people even know those options are available before even diving into the different mandate structures that could take place from the municipal level in addition to combine that with developers. So yes, you did say a lot here that I want to dive into. You know, one, you talk about the incentives and I remember throughout this process, and even now here in New York City, when you take large municipalities like New York City, California, Philadelphia, D.C., things of that mm -hmm. nature, there's a lot of people in a small concentrated area building their, I mean, land is not as bountiful in places like that, right? At one point, we had to like, you know, push that the island further out <laughs> of Manhattan in order to build up to get the housing necessary, right? And that's going to come to bite us in the ass when it comes to climate change. But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in existence right now, it is right, right. And when yeah, yeah. So come. <laughs> Eventually, the you know the ocean's going to be like, yeah, I want that back. So, right. <laughs> so when you have places like these that are also expensive places to build. The mm -hmm. argument, at least from the folks that actually physically build the, the, the housing, is that, well, if you put these further restrictions for us to do these, what they call set-asides for affordability for people, you know, that increased the cost of building and it just makes it difficult. And then you have an era, which we've had in these places, New York City, California, of all, all these places where you had the this building of million dollar condos and all that kind of stuff, some of which sat empty, right? Because who is the market for that? And this is specific to, again, you know, these urban areas mm -hmm. in that instance. How does because there is the pro and the con of inclusionary zoning, mm -hmm. right? How, what is the right balance to strike in that conversation, particularly with those who, you know, are want to target those million dollar folks for the, this is their second condo, their kid's condo or, you know, things like that. And that's really not the housing that we need. Mm -hmm. So a couple of things. I, one, I think that people need to start thinking like a developer. And, you know, a lot of those real estate shows are very popular. I actually watch them because it's one, it's great to just see what the concentration of money really is out here. It's absolutely ridiculously principal. And I'm like, why is this not more readily available? Also, should I be in real estate? But the interesting thing about it is you get to see for, for some of them that actually have the expertise and know what they're doing, you get to see how the mind, you get to get, tap into the mind of a developer. And I think 
That's what policymakers need to do. I, the problem is that the policymakers, and I'm, I'm just going to be quite transparent here because that's the only way we'll be able to address this. The policymakers, especially on the municipal level, are not in the driver's seat. No, they're in the passenger seat. They're not even the GPS. I would say that. Wait, wait, um, wait. What's the GPS? So I'm gonna. This is what I'm gonna say. Oh, you said that they're not even the GPS. They're not even determining the, the the direction. Yes, I'm going to say in my. This is my humble opinion. I'm going to say that even before developers, I think venture capitalists and investors are the GPS. I'm going to say developers are in the driver's seat, and then I'm going to say that policymakers are in the passenger seat. We need policymakers at least in the driver's seat and maybe push the developers into the passenger seat. The reality is the investors are going to have to be the GPS. And, and it, it, that has a lot to do with how, unless there's more money funneled into municipalities, that's playing a huge role here too. Because, and I'm, I'm going to give you an example. I'm not going to name the city for the sake of just you know, playing it politically. But I will say this. There was a city, there was a list that came out during COVID-19. And it was a list of influential policymakers across municipalities. Politico put the list out. So anyone can go find this list and you'll see for yourself. But for one of the cities... Instead of listing like the mayor of that city, similar to many other cities, they listed the developer. First and foremost, I had secondhand embarrassment in that situation. It wasn't even me. But secondly, I think I actually think that was really interesting. And I, I'm really glad that they did that, whoever, whomever the journalist was who took the, the shot, because I think that what it showed was is that developers actually are driving our communities and local environments more than policymakers. Now, that being said, I do think COVID-19 put a spotlight on things where it gave legislators on the local level, you know, opportunities to take back some of that power a bit, which is why the list came out, right? I mean, you had Mayor London Breed, which I know San Francisco is, is not getting the best reputation right now as it relates to affordability. But some of the things that took place during COVID-19 that Mayor Breed led on at least helped to, uh, to alleviate some of those things. And even on the local level in Detroit, more of my hometown, there were different things put in place from the gubernatorial level and the legislative level that trickled down to the county and local level around kind of like eviction moratoriums, pay where you are programs and things like that, that helped with, again, the housing affordability and home ownership retention. But again, we still have the developers in place. So some of the things I think if I were thinking like a developer to help incentivize, one, I wouldn't think about, and, and this is where a policymaker should think, not presenting zoning in an area that already has high levels of development. I would say try to get to the areas that have yet to even be gentrified that people see as gems. Like you need to protect and preserve as many 
community or areas for especially low and moderate income areas as possible before you wipe out the entire area. Because it's going to be hard to save face on an area that already had the entire areas completely gentrified. So if you're looking at that from a DC perspective, you pretty much lost out on Navy Yard, right? You pretty much lost out on the wharf area, but you have other areas in DC that have yet to be tapped. Are you going to continue to preserve Southeast? Are you, you know, it's in a similar looking at New York. I mean, one of the things that inspired the historical and I'll, after this, I'll, I'll, stop there. But one of the things that inspired the historical aspect of this report was actually from a documentary that I was watching. And I was talking to our intern, Anikid, about this. I'm trying to develop a narrative because I was watching Supreme Team, Supreme about the Supreme Team that came out of Jamaica, Queens. And I'm someone that has a takeaway from anything that I'm watching and, and bring shedding light and getting information from. But what I found so interesting was the conversation about Jamaica Queens, because as far as I knew about Jamaica Queens, I mean, you just know it from this hip hop narrative where Jamaica Queens is kind of like that sponge of where all of this talent breeded. But what was Jamaica Queens before hip hop? really got into the mainstream. And Jamaica, Queens, a neighborhood in Queens, New York, is a prime example of the social and economic changes that can happen. You know, you have a prosperous community with a bustling retail economy before the mid-1900s, and then Queens is disproportionately burdened by tax reforms from New York City government. In addition to all of this happening, the, the things that happened post-GI Bill era, and then as a result, you know, Jamaica Queens underwent a significant racial transformation where many white families began moving out in the 1960s, leaving Black, Asian and other immigrant families, you know, moving in. But it didn't retain economically because there was little to no economic investment after that. And then you start putting things like tax reforms or mandates and different things in place. And then next thing you know, you turn it into a more destitute environment. So I just kind of wanted to leave that as an example of somewhere that had you had an IZ policy solution in place and maybe applied certain things from a legislative standpoint that couldn't be overturned, you would have had protection in place to ensure that none of those things were possible and probably would have retained the area. Yeah. So I, you know, I grew up primarily in Rosedale, which is not too far from Jamaica. And it was the place, as you mentioned, you know, growing up in New York City, it was us on one side of the street, African-American, you know, migrated from the South family. On the end were Italian American family, my 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 god mommies, as I you know, as I call them across the street, Jamaican immigrants, Pakistani immigrants, you know, all of us sort of living, you know, in this middle what we presume middle class lifestyle now as adults. Then it was just like this is just life <laughs> from that standpoint. But it brings me to this point as you talk about different policies, the lack of economic investment and policies that then happen in those communities when certain people move out or move to to another place, right? Those opportunities and those economic advances follow those communities, 
right? We can think of communities on Long Island in New York. And I'm sure those of you listening in other uh, in other states have some of the similar, you know, thing, whether it be Baltimore, whether it, you know, in, in other places across the country, where that also happened, where you once had a working class or middle class community, particularly as, a, as we both mentioned, diverse communities that come in after, you know, white community moves out, <laughs> you know, from that. And then resources follow them rather than investing in that in that area. And then we see the reverse happening now with gentrification where, you know, it's popping, people coming back. Again, money following them wherever they go. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, wouldn't, you know, part of your report is also looking at the historical context and the historical data. In addition to the money following those people that are presumed to be more prosperous, is also using zoning to isolate and keep people out. Because I can think of communities on Long Island and in other parts of the state that were deliberately done in order to, you know, preserve quote, white communities and keep out an urban element, right? So zoning is not, would you say, sort of race neutral, <laughs> if you will? It, it depends on who's actually creating it? Well, well, I will say that, and that's why, and I want to go back to the differentiation of the different types of zoning, and that's why we use inclusionary zoning, because inclusionary zoning to an extent, will be more race-specific. It'll be more socioeconomic-specific. But zoning, zoning actually has nothing to do with race or socioeconomic status. So someone should, can, try, can end up rezoning or upzoning. And I want to give a few examples of that as well. Because zoning is another policy trend that seeks to increase development density by tackling exclusionary zoning laws. And some of the practices, they've piloted in some major cities like Seattle and Portland, which, by the way, are two also two very expensive cities. And, you know, they loosen the exclusionary restrictions, such as like floor ratios or height limits, as you mentioned, building height limits. But they're still has to be more research on upzoning because some policy experts, you know, have foresaw potential increases in gentrification, displacement, and housing affordability if it's not paired with protections for low-income residents and target development tools such as inclusionary zoning provisions. So this is why we're pro-inclusionary zoning and not upzoning because Upzoning is going to sound good and and rezoning is going to sound good. But if you don't say inclusionary zoning, it's not going to include housing unaffordability and it's not going to target low to moderate income as well. So it goes back to, I have a a mentor figure here in education that's his area expertise. And he talks about everybody diagnoses a problem that was created, you know, with Black folks in mind or people of color in mind, like to keep them out, to give it whatever. But then you don't want to be that specific in doing the problem, right? It's like you want to be race right. neutral in doing the problem, right. but you weren't race neutral in creating the problem <laughs> like to right. begin with, right? And so that that inclusionary piece comes with, no, you have to put that at the top of your mind. Mm-hmm. That has to be on the table because if you do something that um, race neutral, you're not taking in the context of what historically 
the you know policies and municipalities and states have done that actually keep people out and discriminate against them so you have to keep it at the top of mind to ensure that you're not repeating that process so inclusionary is like you know yes, this may be a race neutral thing but given that we have a history of redlining in this community given that there's a history of predatory lending particularly as it pertains to black people like we can say everybody is eligible for this household but really is everybody eligible if we've <laughs> like if we've had these decades you know lifelong policies of excluding people from loan excluding people and putting them in certain neighborhoods over the other so that's why it's important for you to keep it on the top of mind because those things were kept in the top of mind when they created the exclusionary policy absolutely like i was sitting here like yes i mean it's still a sunday it's sunday civic so i feel like i can have a little praise dance on that because you know, it's so important and and I don't have a problem naming the thing. That's just me. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I absolutely wanted to talk about how race and equity plays a role in all of this. That disproportionate impact of redlining, predatory lending, and gentrification have had serious, and when I say serious, serious implications at the state and municipal level for equitable policy development and, and implementation. It has really limited, one, even the mentality of how people think about the policy. I literally said not too long ago when, when speaking on a panel, I said the fact that cost of living is even a term that we're using still in 2023 this is extremely problematic. Like, why is that even still a term that's even being used on Beyonce's internet and pushed out here in the mainstream for us to adopt? So it's like capitalism literally just said, hey, let's just give them a term <laughs> that they can adopt and digest. And it'll be so institutionalized that you won't even question it. That's actually extremely problematic. And we have to get to the point of questioning things. If we're quick to question everything else and, and cancel culture and things of that nature, can we please question the terms that we have just learned to accept and adopt, especially in this era where everything is a buzzword? And I feel like the idea of gentrification came up in the buzzword era. I feel like that even played off of BuzzFeed a little bit, but it came in that era where you know, people were adopting colloquialisms from the Black community about being woke and using diversity, using or using DEI altogether, but not really breaking down what that even means. No one ever breaks down what they mean by equity. They just use equity. No one ever breaks down what they mean by people of color. They just say people of color. No, you need to be name specific because you've harmed specific individuals and it requires specificity. You were specific in your discrimination. Your sign said, your sign said no black people. Exactly. <laughs> like your sign. It didn't say no color. No Irish. Like you, like you had, exactly. there was specificity yes. in your exclusion on your sign. And now all of a sudden you're just like, oh, we're just going to lump everybody together. No, no, no. Like go back. Go back to your sign. Like, be specific. <laughs> like, all exactly. about. That's all I'm saying. Like, now, I, I, what I can say is that coming out of the last four to six years and where we are today, 
at least some of the racism is now served on a platter. I like my racism to my face. Like, I like to see it in, I don't want it embedded in institutions. I don't want it embedded in structural prohibition. I want it embedded right there in your face where you can address it because at least you know what you're getting. But we have so many systems and housing is one of them. I mean, I think about so many peers of, of mine, um, you know, and we're not even just talking low income to moderate income. Now we're talking higher income earners as well who are coming with, you know, edu the educational background. They've done the career. They've done the schooling. They borrowed the student loans, which also plays a role, but we're not going to go there today. But they've done all the things that you told them to go out and do because in the 80s and 90s, you told them, you know, their words, not mine. Don't be a welfare queen and don't be dependent on the government and don't do it. So you told them you this is your narrative that you created and you told them to go out and get an education and get a career. And that's how you pull yourself up from the bootstraps, as they've quoted. Again, their words, not mine, because I, again, don't even claim that narrative. But the fact that I have to use that as an example is hard enough. And. You told them to do that and they went and they digested your little narrative, okay? And they went and they had parents who also told them, you got to go to college and you got to go get a job and all of these things are going to give you success and you're going to have a house and you're going to have children and you're just going to be so financially stable. And guess what? They're not. And they're living in many of these cities and they are deeply impacted and affected. And it's so disheartening to see so many peers of mine who can't buy a house, and we're talking, they're not even, we're, people are now moving into 40s and 50s. So this is extremely detrimental. It, it, it impacts so many other elements of people's lives and their decisions. And they can't just go out and, you know, go move into that multi-million dollar condo. They can't even compete for that because no one's going to be able to put 750000 down. Like, can we please just start naming what it is and how it directly impacts everyone and how yeah. it's a line of systemic hurt That's and also them, them fico scores and them, <laughs> and them credit report like just a whole dismantling system particularly yeah. when that that narrative that you say go to college you know build a family get the career sort of do all of that kind of stuff and owning a home is also part of that fairy tale narrative right you know i bought into it right just like you know that was even in marrying my husband, I was like, I need to own a house because that is, and, and everything is wrapped up. I'm going to have to talk to a historian about this too, of owning land, of owning the property that you live in and whether or not how much that plays into also that it, making it exclusive, right? That you you owning where you live, either owning the land or owning the building, the apartment, the condo, the house or what have you, how how that is part of our you've made it narrative and making it exclusive, making it hard for people to achieve that is on purpose. Um, that's an opinion, not a fact. Uh, <laughs> so we'll go there. But, I, but my opinion is that it's deliberate deliberate in that of making it exclusive for people to achieve that status. 
So Lauren, we can nerd out a little bit more, but I'm actually going to have you back. I'm going to have you back and we're going to have a conversation, a panel conversation about housing and affordability going forward. But I thank you so much for this level set of one of the tools that can be used in, in creating affordable because we didn't even get into the AMI, the area media income calculation and all of that stuff. Yes. So we still have more to talk about as it pertains to that. Absolutely. And and thank you so much for having me. I know that this topic can go on and on, but I know we're coming coming up on time. But I just am so appreciative of the conversation and the dialogue. I would love to come back and dive even further. There are so many other things we can talk about and so many other aspects of, of the work I do, whether it's financial security and tax policy, which this is a huge year, by the way, as a plug for earned income tax credit expansion in a couple of states and earn income tax credit expansion and awareness day is coming up actually in January. So January 27th, um, ahead of tax day. So it just would be important to, to have that conversation as well. But there's so many other aspects of the economy and policy solutions that I would be happy to dive into and talk about with, with the audience again. Thank you. And thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. How can it be that you love the most Welcome back to Sunday Civics, and that's it. Hope you learned something. Hope those of you who are actively fighting on affordable housing where you live that you learn from this. Maybe it's something that you can implement in your local organizing. We're going to do more conversations because I want to do a whole series and put out a whole series about tools, policy tools, legislative tools to promote the building and the creation of affordable housing, because it's not simple. And there are a lot of things that go into it. And so when we are demanding affordable housing and affordable rents, we need to be aware of all of the different aspects. Not that I'm putting you in developer mode, <laughs> but we need to be aware of all of the tools at our disposal that can be used to build and keep our communities how we would like them to be, which is affordable. So I'm just going to remind you again, if you haven't done so, please vote for Sunday Civics in the Outstanding News and Information Podcast category in the NAACP Image Awards, which is open public open voting to the public. You can go to vote.naacpimageawards.net. And you can not only vote in the podcast category, but you can vote in some of the other categories as well. Best picture, best drama, best actress, supporting actress, all of those categories that are public are open to you to cast your vote. And I believe it's one vote per email address. So if you got, are like me and have 11 email addresses, <laughs> um, I by the end, by the time the deadline is, I will have voted using all of my email addresses in a lot of the demonstrations. So please make sure to do that. And then make sure to join us next Sunday. So 9 a.m. at our regular time, we'll have our regular show time and our guests will be the amazing Sherilyn Eiffel. I am so excited. I have been preparing for this day for some time. I had to dust off my notepad where I dreamt up of having a conversation with her here on Sunday Civics. So I got to, you know, dust off my questions and things and get that in order. And then at 
5 p.m., we're going to do a Sunday Civics live show live. You can join us on YouTube, on Facebook, or just on the regular sundaycivics.org website. And we're going to have some special guests. We're going to have fun. But there will also be some lessons <clears throat> in there as well. So don't fret. It will still be a class for you to join, <clears throat> for you to learn and take civic action. And I want to say this, those of you who are listening, who are regular listeners, I want to hear from you. And if you are available at 5 p.m. next Sunday, definitely I want to hear from you. And maybe I'll bring you up to the virtual stage, the virtual front of the class, and you can share with the rest of us the story of your first civic action or how you have taken the information and the lessons that guests and myself have brought to the front of this class, how you are implementing it in your local community. I want to hear those stories because this celebration of the nomination is really about you that continue to listen and uplift and also learn from this show to take action. So make sure to do that. Reach out to us. We'd love to have you as a part of the celebration for this Sunday Civics Live show. See you next Sunday. Oh, it's cool.